Our scripture this morning is from John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. In your pew Bible, this is located on page 948. John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Then Jesus said to those who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, we're glad you're here. It encourages us that you're here and we want to be an encouragement to you. Isn't it a beautiful day outside? We truly are blessed in many ways. And I think about this time of year and perhaps even next weekend, we could have this type of weather and we're planning on having a great family day no matter what, but this would really be nice. So continue to pray about that and pray even more importantly about family day itself and the souls that could be touched. Listen, we want to place a strong emphasis upon us as a congregation being a family of God. And that's going to be a great focus next Sunday. As a matter of fact, we're going to, at 4 o'clock, go down to the park, as we oftentimes do. We're going to worship together at 4 o'clock. At 5 o'clock, we'll eat kind of a picnic-style hot dog meal together. You'll be asked to bring side items. Um, we'll let you know about desserts a little bit later on in the week. We, we may have something up our sleeve there. You might not need to bring desserts. And uh, we will enjoy that time together. And right after, right after that, we are going to enjoy the children's activities that have always been a great success and enjoyment for them and us to watch. But also we're going to have, I'll just go ahead and tell you, the great master of creativity, Philip Jenkins, is going to plan some family games. In other words, that means intergenerational activities. And that doesn't mean, well, you know, I live a long way from my family. No, you don't. Right here is your family. And so at family day, there will be individuals looking around for, for different generations of families that will come together as a family and participate. And uh, we look forward to that. Also, uh, we can't help but bring back at least cornhole. We know that uh, Carl Kelly and Troy Feltner are the world champions of that as of last time. And we look forward to seeing if they have been practicing or not and can keep that going. But listen, make your plans. Four o'clock there, you know the routine. It's, it's more convenient for handicapped people to get there than it is here, the way everything is provided. And uh, there will be service here at six. If for some reason it's not best for you to be there, morning worship and Bible classes will be the same here and we want to encourage you to invite individuals to family day here in the morning and there in the afternoon and we look forward to that time together. Also to get ready for such an occasion just like we all do at our houses we have work to do around the Lord's house here, the physical building and so they'll be painting at the 2030 building. The young adults will be helping with that. Anybody can jump in and help if you want. The four-year detail, the Sunday morning ladies class will be taking care of that. I'm sure they'd appreciate some help. Here in the auditorium, the melting pot class and also there will be a sign up at the Welcome Center if you want to help in here. There'll be pressure washing that the Wednesday night men's class is going to be leading, but they also would welcome any help on that. And the young marrieds will be doing the bus and van details. So anywhere you want to jump in on that, please let it be known. 
Can you imagine what it would be like to suffer from amnesia? Jeffrey Ingram, at the age of 40, went through his second bout. You see, all he was going to do was drive from Washington State just across the border to visit a friend who had cancer in Canada. Now, back in the 90s, he had experienced his first bout of amnesia. He just was going to the grocery store, but his family didn't see him for nine months. Finally, after he came home, he was able to regain most of his memory and able to rebuild his life again. But now this time, his family again wondered, where is he? He didn't arrive in Canada where he should have been. Police officers found him and they began to help him. They put him on the evening news and this is what he said before the camera. If anybody recognizes me, knows who I am, please let someone know. Isn't it interesting when you forget who you are? You forget who your family is. You don't even know who to let know that you need help. It's interesting when his fiance and his mother finally got him back to his home, he looked his fiance in the face and he said, I don't really know her. Her face is not familiar to me, but her heart is familiar to me. The fiance also said that later he described home and he said, I don't remember home, but it sure feels like home. This morning from the word of God, I want to ask you, where do you live? Have you forgotten amnesia where you are supposed to live? Do you realize that if we fail to live, as the text said this morning in John 8 there, to abide in his word, do you realize if we fail to live in the word of God, we forget who we are. We're children of God. We forget how we as a family are to conduct ourselves. We forget who our family is and that we have responsibility to them and we could be blessed by the responsibilities that they have to us. We forget who our father is and we miss out on the eternal blessings that only he can offer. Listen, this morning we'll look at several things, but the one main thing that I want us all to wrestle with this morning is where do we live? Really, where do you live? There is no way we can be who we need to be to have the memory we need to have to experience the spiritual blessings that are there for us, to have the influence and the impact upon other people if we fail to abide, if we fail to live within the word of God. We don't have a slide for this. If you have your Bible, I want you to open to Psalm 119 and I'm just gonna breeze through what is a longest chapter in the Bible. I'm just gonna breeze through a few of the verses. Not that every one of these talks about the word of God in the sense that we abide in it, but I want you to notice how we are to live in the word of God. We are to love the word of God. We are to treasure the word of God. And maybe this would be a passage that you wanna work through this quarter, even on your own study as we think about how beautiful and wonderful the Word of God is. Psalm 119 and verse 11, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 59, Psalm 119, 
I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies, changing where we put our feet, the testimonies of God. Verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Is there an absolute truth? We're gonna ask that this morning. And notice the psalmist believed that it was and that it is settled not only for earth, but it is settled for an eternity. Look at 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The psalmist believed that he was supposed to walk in the word of God. 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. The psalmist says that he's going to use God as his refuge, his hiding place. When I need safety, I know where I can go. I find my hope, where? In your word. 161, princesses persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands, see the respect here? My heart stands in awe of your word. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. Now, as we read this last one that I'll read from Psalm 119, I'd like for you to think about our theme for the year, soul focus. And the theme for this month is guiding souls. Think about this, 175. Let my soul live. That's ultimately what we're going to be studying about this morning because it's what Jesus talked about in John 8, the text that we just read. Let my soul live and it shall praise you. And let your judgments, that's the word of God, let your judgments help me. Do you and I this morning realize the awesome blessing that it is to abide in the word of God? Let's go back to that slide again of John 8, 31 and 32. And I want to show you four things that Jesus says here. And you keep them on their, your mind because we're not going to necessarily work point one, point two, point three, and point four. This morning we're going to work more like here are the four points that Jesus makes. And as we study, we'll see a little bit of one and a little bit of three and a little bit of two and a little bit of four. Notice the four points that he makes here. He says, if you what? Live. Abide in my word. Now notice the, the pronoun you is in here four times. So if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So one, we can decide where we're going to abide. What would it do for us? Number two, if we decide to abide in his word, then we can be his disciples. And it's not maybe, it's not could be. This is a big, important point with certainty. He says, you are my disciples indeed. But now notice, not only are we going to be his disciples, but number three, and you shall know the truth. Now, what's that connected to? Abiding in the word. You abide in the word, you can be his disciples indeed. You abide in the word, you will know the truth. Why do I need to know the truth? Notice that next phrase. And the truth shall make you free. There is something of freedom that truth can offer that nothing else can offer. I only find it when I'm abiding in the word. I only find it when I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm only a disciple of Jesus and abiding in the word. I only find it if I know truth. I only know truth if I'm a disciple that abides in the word. I will only be free 
If I know truth as a disciple of Jesus, abiding in the word. Now, I know you'd love it if we said that's the lesson this morning, but you know that's the way preachers don't work. But that is the lesson this morning. And so now let's see what is the context of this lesson. Let's back up to the very first chapter, the very first part of this chapter. If you have your Bible open, uh, we won't have every verse here that we're going to scan over. Look back. We're still in in John 8. And and look back as we see in John 8, the woman is, is caught in adultery. And it's quite a story, but I think sometime, and I'm not saying everybody here does it, I'm not trying to throw everybody in the same kettle here, but but sometime I think we miss maybe the great spiritual lesson that is taught in this because we get so hung up on the fact of, was she really guilty of adultery or not? Well, what was Jesus going to do if, if and, and then we also get caught up in, what was Jesus writing on the ground? And we get caught up in, in these physical details And we miss the powerful lesson that is leading up to the verses we've just read. This chapter is all about being set free of the bondage of sin. And so this story here is recorded because it's leading up to this direct teaching of do you want to be set free from the bondage of sin? If you want to be set free from the bondage of sin, you better abide in the word, be a disciple of the Lord, know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So how are we going to get to verse 30 and 31? Well, we start out in verse two. It's early in the morning and Jesus is teaching in the temple and he, we would say, is rudely interrupted. And we see that interruption in verse three. It's scribes and Pharisees and they bring a woman that has been caught in the act of adultery and they set him, her right in the midst of Jesus and the people. How embarrassing can you get? And she doesn't even belong there. She should have been taken over in front of the Sanhedrin council. There was no place for her there. You see, they're not out to find justice, to find some kind of righteous act here. As a matter of fact, they say their words in verse four, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And then they give this information. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? And here we find their motive. We don't have to guess at their motive. Verse six, this they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. Remember Revelation 12th chapter, Satan is the accuser of brethren. Here we see them working for Satan. They are accusing the son of God on earth. Satan is still out today trying to accuse you and I. He wants to stand before the father and he wants to say, look what they're doing. Look what they're doing. How do we avoid that? By the grace of God, but also by dwelling, abiding in the word of God. How were they trying to trap Jesus here? Well, would he not honor Moses' law? Moses' law did say that she should be stoned. And so if he didn't honor Moses' law, they could then say, see, he's not a teacher of the law. But yet on the other hand, if he said, yes, let's go out and stone this woman right now. You remember they were under Roman authority. You remember the very fact of Jesus' execution? Remember they had to take him as the Jews, the Sanhedrin council had to go before Pilate because the law of the Romans was that only the Roman government could be in charge of execution. And so they were probably hoping that if he didn't, if he decided to stand with the law of Moses in their mind's eye, that then they would do this and he would have the Roman authorities on his case. You see, they thought they figured out a way to trap him, but instead he ignores them. 
he stoops down on the ground and with his finger, he begins writing. No, we don't know what he wrote and scholars have debated it and people have been curious and that's fine. But listen, I tell you, it doesn't matter at all what he wrote. We do not need to know at all what he wrote. That wasn't the emphasis of this. This is a story to help us learn a powerful spiritual lesson. And so finally, they continue to press the issue with Jesus. And so instead of answering about this woman, he decides to give a comment that would reveal the accusers. And so he then replies in verse 7, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And when he says without sin right there, that's a word in the Greek that's only in the Bible one time. It's literally the word for sinless. And so Jesus says, okay, let's talk about you accusers. You want to talk about this woman? I want to talk about you. How many of you are without sin? Well, let's just say it this way. Whichever one of you is without sin, you be the first one to pick up the stone and you throw it at her. Now, under the old law, when there were witnesses to such a, uh, a, a sinful activity as this, the witnesses would have to bear witness in order for the person to be put to death. And then the person that bore witness would have to be the first one to throw the stones. And so Jesus is coming close to home with them here. Okay, which one of you, which one of you have not even sinned? Perhaps he's even implying in this matter. Who's going to throw the stone first? They begin to dismiss themselves from the eldest of them down to the youngest of them, one by one. And then Jesus just goes back to riding in the ground again. And when he looks up again, he sees that it's only him and the woman. And so he says to her in verse 10, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Now these are the first words that we have recorded that this woman has said in this situation. She only says three, and I want you to notice especially the last word. He says, where are the accusers? And her answer is, no one, Lord. Something's changing in the life of this adulterous woman. Who is it that becomes disciples? People that are willing to abide in his word. What's Jesus' word going to be for this woman? He turns to this woman and he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Notice he didn't say, I condone you. He says, neither do I condemn you. He's already said this in John the third chapter. We love verse 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. But remember verse 17, when he was speaking to Nicodemus, he said that God sent his son to this world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. What was he doing for this woman? They wanted the woman dead. They didn't care about her soul. They were so wrapped up in some kind of earthly living and believing that he was going to take over whatever earthly influence they had. And Jesus, Jesus wanted the woman's soul to be saved. You see, we get wrapped up in this and we say, wow, he saved her life. They were going to kill her. 
And I assure you, if Jesus spoke to us today about that, he would not place the emphasis on the physical life that he saved. He would place the emphasis on the fact that that day that woman became a disciple of his. That day that woman was forgiven. That day she was not condemned any longer. That day she learned what was expected in her life. You go now and don't sin anymore. Brethren, do you realize all throughout this community, there are people that it's not that they're just seeking to be mean people, but they haven't given one thought this week as to whether or not they've sinned. They haven't sat down at a day and evaluated, should I say this or not say this? Because I want to live truth. It's only the people that abide in the word that becomes disciples of Jesus that know the truth. And so therefore, they're the only ones that can live the truth. This day, she was reminded of where she needed to live her life. She needed to live her life within the will of God. So where does that take us? When we look <clears throat> at Romans, I'd like for you to look with me at Romans the eighth chapter. In Romans the eighth chapter, after Jesus made statements like this, it led him all the way to the cross. He died, he was buried, and he was resurrected. And with this resurrection, or with the death, and soon after the resurrection came a new covenant. Now that new covenant technically began as the old covenant died on the cross. But I want you to think with me for just a moment. When we read passages like Romans 8 and verse 1, I want you to hear these afresh. I want you to hear this anew. Therefore, think about that woman. Think about you and I today. Romans 8 and verse 1. There is, therefore, now. You see, something changed when Jesus came and died and was resurrected. Now, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Where do you live do you abide in the Word? And throughout the Scriptures, it never separates in Christ and in the Word. We abide in Christ. We abide in His Word. Where is it that there is no condemnation? When is it that there is no condemnation? I want to take something that you studied in Bible class last week. And again, if you're, if you're here this morning and you don't usually go to Bible class, we urge you this quarter, please go to Bible class this quarter. Any adult class would love to have you in their class. We're studying together about this topic of Scripture, the inspiration and authority of Scripture. Last week, many of you would have probably talked at least a little bit about the Scriptures and, and the eyewitnesses and how that it makes a huge difference whether or not you have an eyewitness. Have you ever thought how Christianity began? You have a dozen apostles and they went out. Who's going to listen to them? Now you think about that. Who's going to listen to them talk about a dead man? Oh, but now he came back to life. Oh, and now he's resurrected and ascended. He's on the right hand throne of God. Really? <laughs> you, you expect us to believe that. Brethren, not only do people believe it, it made a huge impact upon the Hebrew people. The first converts to Christianity 
were the Jews. And you know, when we look at a crater, we look at something and we say, wow, that, that made a huge impact. Have you ever stopped and really considered the impact that Christ made upon this earth? We're not just talking about one group of people. We're talking about these people that for generations, for a few thousand years, their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers have been passing down animal sacrifice. And now Jesus comes along and he changes animal sacrifice and the apostles begin to go out and teach. Jesus Christ is the one who is sacrificed. We're not going to offer animal sacrifice any longer. Who would have the power to stop that? We're talking about something major. How did they have that kind of impact? Listen, they not only worshiped on the Sabbath, they kept the Sabbath holy from what we would think of as sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday is the way they would have gauged it. And they kept it holy throughout time until Jesus Christ's covenant came. And then they began to worship on Sunday. Christ was resurrected on Sunday. They partook of his supper on Sunday. They gave of their means on Sunday. How, if you would have said to those people, there's coming a time where we're going to stop this animal sacrifice. We're going to stop the Sabbath. They would say, oh no, we'll never stop that. All these years, they looked for a Messiah. And the Christian faith began by saying, we have seen the Messiah. Witness. You had men that could say we lived with him, abiding in the word. We have men that says we lived with him. We walked with him. We heard his teaching. We saw his miracles. We know he's the son of God. And by the way, we saw him die. We saw his tomb and we saw him resurrected. We looked into the empty tomb. We were able to touch and to see and to hear. And it wasn't just us 12. There were over 500 alive that saw him at one time. Now you want to insert something else that's powerful? What benefit is this story? You're going to listen? You're going to listen to 12 men that's going to tell you about this awesome new faith called Christianity? And that... that the old law is going to be fulfilled through Christ dying? Are, are you going to listen to that? Are you going to believe it? What are these individuals getting out of it that's telling it? Oh, let me tell you. It's set up like a pyramid, kind of like Amway. And if Peter can just get five followers, they get five followers, they get five followers, he's going to be able to retire in five years a millionaire. I'm not trying to be silly. Really? What are they going to get out of it? They left good fishing businesses? Where's the financial gain? Where's the gain of earthly physical safety? They left what they had pursue a life with much less riches, to spread the gospel, the good news of the resurrected Lord, urging people to be disciples of His. Not only were they not promised a better physical life on this earth, it was proven that none of them had a better physical life. Would you sign up for that? 
I want to invite you this morning to become a Christian. I want you to know that if you're walking up straight and feeling good in time, you won't be because they'll probably break your leg. When they stone you, they very well may break your ribs. They're going to, to beat you. You're not going to look in a few years the way you look now, but we invite you to become a Christian. Listen, the apostles didn't do it for some great financial gain. They didn't do it because physical life was going to be easy or better. They did it because they understood that the Messiah had come and it took all the way to his death and resurrection, but they finally got it. It's not about the earthly. It's not about, wow, Jesus saved that adulterous woman's life. She was about to die. Before Jesus' resurrection, the apostles would have probably got excited about the fact that he saved her physical life. I guarantee you, after the resurrection, they would have talked about he saved her soul. Brethren, the spread of Christianity was because that huge impact that would change generations of belief, that would fulfill an old covenant. The impact was the Messiah, the one that is God on earth, the only one that can give eternal life. He's come. Do you want to be free from the shackles of sin? There's no one else that can do that. You can have that if you abide in his word. You can be his disciple and you can know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's no greater reason to be a Christian. Do we have blessings on this earth abiding in the word? Somebody says, it just helps our physical family. Yes, it does. And I'm thankful for that. And that's a part of God's design. But that's not the most important reason. Well, it just makes us better neighbors. That's great. But that's not the most important reason. Here in America, and it's going to change probably, but here in America up to this time, you can say, usually people do better financially that are Christians. Probably will change in time. What's the greatest reason? What's the greatest reason to abide in the Word? so that we can be free from sin. Let's skip to the very end and think about what we learned today. Number one, I must search and study in order to understand how much I need Jesus. What I mean by that? This morning, if you're here and you've never gotten serious about your purpose in life and your eternity. That means you've never gotten serious about the Word of God. And I want you to know something this morning. There's no easy and cheap shortcut to find out who God is and who you are other than getting in the Word. You have to decide if you want to study and you want to find out who God is and who you are. Only those who live in the Word, find those answers. Number two, if I live, that is abide in the truth, I can be a disciple of Jesus. I need to understand that. If I will not abide in the Word, I cannot be a disciple. You can call yourself a disciple. Other people can call you disciples. But Jesus will not call you a disciple if you don't live in His Word. Number three, this will free me from sin. 
Truth is the key to unlock the shackles of sin. Amnesia. There's a good feeling about being home. Nobody has to show you where your bedroom is or where your seat is at the table. Warm feelings of people around you that you know and love and trust, hopefully. Can you say when you study God's Word, I feel at home. I go to work and sometimes it's challenging and hard, but when I come back to His Word, I feel at home. When I'm living out His Word, I feel at home. That's where I live. That's where I dwell. This morning, if you've never been free from the shackles of sin, it's the Lord's invitation, the invitation to dwell, to live, fulfilling His Word in your life. We hope and we pray. There's a lot of people praying this quarter about us and our life and the Word. And we want everybody here to grow closer to God by learning His Word. If we can help you in some way, if you're ready to be baptized into Christ, if you're a Christian that needs to come back and repent of sins, confess sins, and pray forgiveness, if you're just struggling and you need prayers, whatever we can do as a family, as people that live within the will of God, we want to help you.